Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. France are going to the World Cup. Get over. This fellow Ronaldo is a cop. Boom, 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 foul. Boom, 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 yellow card. Nah, it's actually balls out. I have to ask you to mind your language. And I suggest you shut up and show more football, good lad. I don't throw teacups. It's not my style. You got a lot of throw punches. What you doing down here, you shiny man? <laughs> Okay, okay, I'll admit it, I did believe the hype. By the time the Manchester Derby kicked off on Saturday, excitement levels were high in the McDevitt household. <laughs> I was watching it by myself, obviously, as I generally do. But they were high in my head, in my heart, Ken. Mm-hmm. Uh, how could they not be? In fairness, the game did its best to live up to it, I think. You're very welcome to Monday's Irish Times Second Heavens Football Podcast. Owen, Ken and Murph all here. Hello there, Owen. You're very welcome back, Owen. Thanks, Ken. After I, was, I was away on Thursday, I was interviewing somebody, Ken, for our upcoming second cup in sports annual volume two i wasn't going to mention just because i don't want to be mentioning the annual too much until yes. we start really people know what's it. coming people know it's coming <laughs> we won't overdo the promotion don't worry uh as long as you buy the book <laughs> which will be available <laughs> available for pre-sales okay, oh, wow. okay that's just, wow, well, none of this was actually planned so let's okay what do we end up with once the game had kicked off right a uh, master class of a performance by kevin de Bruyne. yes once discarded by the manager of the opposing team i like that I like that narrative. An eventful goalkeeping performance by the fancy down foreign newcomer to the Premier League, Claudio Bravo. You wouldn't have seen Joe Hart dropping that, whore, that cross. You might have. Actually, In fact, he have. did. Uh, yeah. that, over the weekend on his debut for Torino, he <laughs> did exactly the same ah. thing and Torino lost. So. Uh, uh, we had the local lad completely overawed by the occasion. Poor old Jesse Lingard. He knows what it means. Looked like me or you out there, Murph, trying to play in a Manchester derby. That's not a compliment. No. <laughs> a particularly snarky display by Wayne Rooney, who is just giving uh, yeah. it to everybody. I kind of enjoyed it. The uh, Manchester United legend just kind of giving out to people and kicking lads from behind. And that Pep kind of Guardiola, he, he beat up on Pep, he beat up on Claudio Bravo. Mm. Yeah. And of course, You have to say it was a pretty entertaining game all around. And as I haven't mentioned the managers yet, but we just mentioned mm. them there maybe in a, as a side issue. But round one by a distance to Pep Guardiola. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah it was a really thorough beating, uh, which is maybe disguised a little bit by the scoreline. Um, because I suppose in the end, Manchester United could, e- could easily have won this game, but it would have been uh, difficult for Guardiola then to say afterwards that was one of the best goalkeeping performances I've ever seen uh, from, from my new goalkeeper, Claudio Bravo, because it would have been his fault. Um, well, they should have, Manchester United should have had a penalty, as well as the goal that Claudio Bravo handed to them. And there was another... There was another Easy chance. Just a couple of minutes after that, that he, he he kind of rushed out of his goal with no actual way of getting to the ball, and was then stranded. And the ball is passed to Zlatan, who thinks he's got a free shot, and taps the ball towards the empty net, and turns to see that John Stones is standing on the goal line, mm-hmm. and he really needed to hit that ball a bit harder. But that would have been two-two directly before half time. So I mean, it sounds in in a sense as though it was close, but it really wasn't close. It was one team much better than the other. And then the other team, playing to certain strengths that they had, there's, uh, I'm right, uh, Kevin Keegan said it once, strength, uh, strength, that's his strength, his strength. <laughs> and that was, Majesty United's strength was their strength, and they tried to use that, and it nearly worked. But there was a sort of a desperation to that. 
this is not what Manchester United are supposed to be doing at home to anybody, certainly not at home to Manchester City. And I thought it was a little bit worrying um, the, to see them, you know, from their point of view, to see them outplayed to such a degree by a team that has had so little time, really, with, with Guardiola. City, for the first half hour, the first 35 minutes, looked already like a Guardiola team, which yeah. I'm, I was amazed by. Uh, yeah, because as you made, mentioned in, the, in your column this morning, so, they're trying to. You didn't say whether it was good or bad. He just said That's you mentioned okay. it. Just it's just so you know. Just to mention the Pep is a lot more demanding tactically of his players. He's trying to do a lot more, you could say, and create a more complex system of play than Jose Mourinho is. And yet they look like they're a lot closer to that. In fact, that'd be that was backed up, I think, by Xabi Alonso. I don't know if you saw him before the game. Xabi Alonso, t- type of guy, you know, you want him to marry your daughter. <laughs> just a just a pleasant gentleman, just a nice guy, fluent in a bunch of languages. Yeah, comes across great. That's just a side issue, really. Successful, it, of course. Successful in sport, yeah. doesn't let it go to his head. Nice, yeah. anyway, he was and t- yet wakes up every morning saying, "Thank God, I'm still Javi Alonso." <laughs> you always got to get that impression off Javi Alonso. What was he saying? Was he on? Was he yeah, he was on with Carragher. Went over and chatted to him. Where are you now? Anyway, he went over. Byron. He's still with Byron. Yeah, so he was talking because obviously he was managed by both men, and mm-hmm. he was uh, just. Cargo's trying to get to the bottom of the differences between the two. I wouldn't say there's anything earth-shattering in there, but just a pretty clear, concise explanation of the slightly more demanding style of Pep Guardiola when it comes to tactics. And I'd say certainly for somebody like Xabi Alonso, who's pretty tactically astute, mm. he can handle probably quite a lot that's thrown at him, and there's more thrown at him by uh, Pep Guardiola. One point that he did also make, actually, was that Everyone talks about Guardiola as his attacking coach. You know, he has this. He's got, he's got this idealistic view of how he wants to keep the ball and create pressure and score goals. But actually, he's quite obsessed with def- with nullifying the opposition. Mm. And he feels the best way to do that oftentimes is obviously to have the ball and work them in their weak spots. But he was kind of warning not to get carried away with this idea that Pep Guardiola is his all-out attacking uh, kind of guy. That yeah. he, he actually thinks a lot about how he's going to deal with opponents, which he did successfully for most of yesterday's game. Yeah, I mean, the question, I suppose, is what is what does it mean to be attacking, you know? Uh, I mean, I think we were, we were speaking about this last season with Johnson Wilson, you know, uh, Louis van Gaal always said, I play attacking football, what are you talking about? People would look at him and go, well, all you do is pass the ball around ponderously in midfield and not take that many shots. You're not attacking. And he would say, well, of course we're attacking. We're the team that has the ball. We're the team that's trying to make things happen in the game. The other team is just trying to stop us. We're the attacking team. So that's one way of defining what attacking is. Um, another way of defining it would be, did you have a lot of shots? You know, but you could play a kind of a game which was based on containing where you don't even really want the ball and you've got a couple of quick players who can get forward and take shots, you know, quick, quick moves, you know, just a couple of passes. Is that attacking football? You know, it's, maybe it is. I mean, if you can score a lot of goals, is it scoring a lot of goals? Do you have to score goals to, to, to have played attacking football? It's it's a hard one. I mean, I think Guardiola. The word that he uses is to 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 be. We want to be the protagonist. Protagonist meaning we're the ones who are taking the initiative. We're the ones who are setting the agenda for the game. And if the other team, the other team can do, you know, it's not it's not like the other team can do with what they like. We'll just play our football because obviously he's obsessively looking at what the other team does and trying to figure out a way that he can, you know, where what is the answer? You know, his his video sessions or whatever his three a.m. video session. Um. But to be a protagonist, that's kind of the way that he looks at it. I'm, I'm kind of absolute with the real experts in attacking football. Of course, the nonsense uh, fans. Um, I like the way he just kept talking over Craig, Birdie. Craig Birdie's nerd <laughs> nonsense there. Fair play, <laughs> just keep barreling through. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm with the real experts. The 76,000 people who show up to Old Trafford every week. It's, it's a lot like pornography, you know? Attacking football, I know it when I see it. <laughs> and the, Manchester, <laughs> the Manchester United fans know attacking football when they see it. So, they, I, you know, I think that they had a lot to be reasonably happy with. You think? On um, I think that there was enough tempo, I think is all they're looking for. <laughs> you know, just if they're doing something fast and in a slightly panicked fashion, that'll do for now after the last uh, three seasons. Report on sport. I would disagree with you, actually. I, I, don't, I don't think they would have seen many good signs from that game. Um... I mean, we'll start with City first because they were the they were the team who played well. At least they played well at first. They played well. They played better than I thought they could play. I mean, remember how bad this team was? 
last year. There's not that much difference. There wasn't. There, there was seven of the players that played just. They played in the same game uh, last season for for Man City, seven for Manchester United as well. And they were missing Aguero. They were missing. They were missing Aguero. Um, there wasn't exactly a ringing vote of confidence either by Iannacci before the match by Pep Guardiola. He was asked, "So you've gone with him up front?" And he's like, "Well, yes, he's our striker. He's a striker." Yeah, so you, you know you've got a lot of faith in him. He plays as a striker. He's our striker. Yes, he's, he's a striker. We don't really have any, any position. other players. So there was, you know, so he, yeah, he had to do it without Aguero, who would have had a field day, by the way, during that game, I'd say. And they were without uh, Vincent Company, um, who I think played in that game last year. Although you know his his future is obviously uncertain, but he he has been a big player for for Manchester City um, for many years. Uh, you know, I don't know if, if Guardiola is even going to put him back in, but they played really well, and then. They made a mistake. Claudio Bravo made a mistake, and suddenly they lost all their confidence. And it was a completely different game from that point on. And Bravo, I mean, it was a nightmare that he had. It was an absolute. It was the worst debut. It wasn't quite the worst debut you could have had. The worst debut would have been if he'd been sent off and given away a penalty for that for the foul on Wayne Rooney. Yeah. And I mean, I would say, you know, referee obviously thought he he won the ball cleanly. I'm not sure. I would not have been surprised to see him sent off and, and a penalty been given there. Well, he, won, he definitely won the ball. But yeah. whether that's cleanly or not, that's it, it's the kind of tackle that the usual 20 years ago was not a problem. Mm. Uh, probably wasn't even even Sooner, But Graham Sooner did say that even tw- even when I was playing, that was a foul on a red card. Oh, did he say yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I missed that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to, to, jump, to jump studs up like that... He does. He does make contact with the ball, but that's he makes he, plenty of contact often, with yeah, Wayne That's as often well. a saving grace when a player is trying to defend himself in this situation. Uh, and so, you know, if he gets sent off and it's and it's suddenly a penalty, and um, and Manchester United equalises that point and then get to play another twenty five minutes against ten men, I mean, okay, it could have been worse, but it couldn't have been much worse, really, because Bravo start and, and Guardiola was Guardiola knew this, which is why he went so full-on in defending Bravo afterwards. It's one of the best performances I've seen, you know. Um, and Guardiola makes a point. This is the, this is the thing which I, he, he gets frustrated that people don't grasp this. So we'll, we'll patiently, you know, we'll, we'll say, okay, let's try to understand his point first before we trash it. You be Pep Guardiola, Ken. Myself and Murph will be Joe Bloggs, one and two. Okay, so... so Joe Punter. So uh, you've got to express an opinion first. What did you, what did you make of Bravo? Uh, useless, terrible. Kept dropping the ball, gave it away. Just bloody boot it, will you? Get it out of the, you know, get it. Just Rose get it out of the. Let me ask you. Zone. Let me ask you. Rose Ed, mate. Let me ask you a different but related question. How do you think we played in that first 35, 40 minutes? Brilliant, best of team Man City played years. the ball very well. Yeah. Okay. It's it's amazing how easily we can stroll into this. I'm going to tell you why that is and why these two questions are related. Did you see the way in the first half when we had the ball in our own half? Claudio Bravo was kind of coming out and playing as though he was another, as though he was wearing a little light blue shirt instead of a yellow, garish yellow outfit. Did I see it? Yeah. Did I see it? Can get back in there is what I was thinking. <laughs> Thought the lob was on all half, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I'm telling you is that when we. <laughs> When oh we, my god, I think I've killed McDevitt, yeah. sorry. When, when we had the ball, when we had the ball, Bravo being there meant we could outnumber them at all times. If they tried to come, if, if one of their forwards came forward and tried to get the ball off us, we always had an easy pass to knock the ball away from them and to pass around them. So we were able to get, it, get the ball into midfield in the kind of situations that we wanted to be in. You know, take their forwards out of the game easily with no risk of losing the ball and consistently establish good situations in midfield from which we could then make chances we could we could build the game from there but in order for us to build the game we want to we want to do we have to establish stable possession of the ball you know just ahead of the center circle and that's where we can do our damage from and with bravo playing like that i mean you 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 both nodded off but with bravo playing like that we've got the numerical superiority back that enables us to pass around them and and do that i guess yeah yeah so what i'm saying is that to turn us around yeah yeah i believe what we get out of that in terms of uh, a, a greater attacking potential and also shutting down situations at the back. You know, if that ball comes through, comes behind our defence, I know Bravo is going to be there. You know, there's no through ball that he's not going to be first to. Or not many through balls he's not going to be first to. And I think that what he gives us creatively 
uh, and constructively in terms of when we when our team has the ball is worth the fact that he's quite small and can't catch the ball. Yeah, I would be worried. I'm going to switch back out of into presenter mode, out of Joe Bloggs mode. Oh yeah. What did I just say in Joe? Were we saying Joe Bloggs? When tell us. Well, when yeah, you might as well. Actually, okay, we're saying Joe Bloggs. Uh, all right then. That first cross game. Yeah. I mean Pep. Yeah. That cross that he struggled with. Yeah. Me ma could have caught that cross. <laughs> yeah. right, me ma, me, me, me granny could have probably caught it. Well, maybe your granny wouldn't have gone for it. And maybe that would have been a better decision than what Correct. Claudio Bravo made. Correct. That wasn't even a difficult cross to take. It wasn't as though he was under this long, non-stop aerial bombardment. No. It was just a cross from a free <laughs> for which his defender was in his way, which is pretty basic stuff. But what I'm saying is you, you, you remember that moment. Yeah. It, it really sticks out in the memory. But what about all the other things that he did in the in the half? Well, he touched the ball outside the box fifteen times, apparently. Yeah, according to the lads on Sky, and there, they were they were watching. They were all they were all good touches, weren't they? Well, and uh, kept it moving, I suppose. And we we scored two goals and played and played really well. To continue the Joe Bloggs mode, do you not think the best the best managers in the Premier League, Pards, Mike Phelan, everyone is watching that, and they're all just going to immediately just lump balls up in the air and. Our, our kid Bravo is going to be struggling. I think they will, and that's going to make them very predictable. And uh, I'm, I for one, am predictably delighted. brilliant, Ken. <laughs> These boys know what they're doing. All right. I for one. Why do you think parents side bed Christian Benteke? It's to terrorise people like Claudio Bravo. Yeah. If if prediction Benteke hat trick. If our Palace opponents want to do that, I agree with Joe. If our opponents want to do that, number one, I'm convinced that Claudio Bravo has got the character, uh, has got the mentality. He hasn't got the inches though. He's barely six foot. But the inches don't matter. If, if all our opponent is going to do is lob high balls into the box, then it's going to be a very easy season for us. It's going to be easy. It's going to be a very easy season. Actually, I've, you know, I've completely come around to Bravo's. I can't even remember why you were yeah. doubting well, Bravo in the first place. But he did drop the ball directly onto his left hand's foot. And he did, I mean, he gave away a penalty. I mean, the ref didn't give it. Yeah. But... I mean, there were too Bravo many. wasn't to know that. There were too so. many mistakes. Guardiola's point is that this is a trade-off that's worth it. Okay, maybe he's not, you know, quite like a goalkeeper of the stature of David De Gea, you know, in terms of his pure goalkeeping, the bit you do with the gloves. Mm. But the trade-off in terms of what he gives me uh, as, a, as a player is worth occasional, the, the fact that he will occasionally be dominated in the air. It's worth it. I, I completely understand uh, that, obviously. But, I mean, the, the idea is that he'll make a couple of mistakes a season. Yeah. I mean, he made a couple of mistakes in that game. In one of the that, biggest games. Yeah. And, and right, I, fair enough. Like, it, obviously, this isn't going to be... It's not going to be every week. But at the same time, he, Guardiola did come out and say it was one of the best goalkeeping performances he'd ever seen. Which yeah, yeah. takes us all for idiots. He's just, he's, just, he's just saying, I've got your back, Claudio. I've got, I've got your back. He could have said it without making himself look ridiculous, though. Yeah. He could have perhaps passed on that message without making him look like an You idiot. could see these little flashes of annoyance, though, from Guardia. Like, for, you know, when people say, oh, your goalkeeper's a bit dodgy. I mean, that wasn't Jeff Shree's exact question, but that was obviously what he... I mean, he's mm. kind of annoyed. He's like, no, these idiots, don't, they don't understand. And even when he, was, when he was defending or praising Otamendi, he said, oh, people are always saying Otamendi, you know, he's a great, char- he's a, he's a great character, he's a fighter, he's a fighter. Well, what a, what a football lesson he gave us out there. It's almost as though character fight. He's he's almost got contempt for those traits. You know, the idea that you would even be praised for that is almost embarrassing in his eyes. You know, it's like, whereas on the other bench, well, let's just say, <laughs> it's a slightly different approach. Slightly different approach from the Manchester United manager, who looks for different things from his team. Well, a slightly more realistic appraisal of some of his uh, uh, team's performances, I would say, certainly. Well... Manchester United have a very strong team. Like they've got a lot of good players. They they have the world's most expensive player, you know, in their team. They've got Slatan Ibrahimovic, who's still pretty good. I mean, he's scored in his first four league games. It's not many players have done that. I saw the list. There's like four other guys who managed to do that. Um, you know, he's got England's captain and manager. He's got uh, he's got Mkhitaryan, You know, the best player in Germany arguably last season. Um, a lot of good players. It's not like this is. It's they're not West Brom, so why are they playing like West Brom? Why are they doing that? Why, why, why is it that uh, Manchester United's only way of getting back into the game is to rain down 
long balls from on high at Zlatan Ibrahimovic and Marwan Fellaini. That's a temptation when you have players that tall in your team. Well, there's a lot of tall players in this team. Yeah. But, I mean, it, was, it, it wasn't just what the, t- uh, the players giving into temptation. It was them doing what they were told. Oh, yeah, yeah. They were obviously told. This was it. Fellaini was up in the box with Ibrahimovic, these two massive guys. And it was, all, it was just like, get, get it in there. They can't handle this. Why? Why are Manchester United playing that way? Are you telling me that you, you, you buy Paul Pogba for nearly 100 million pounds? And this is what you play. A style of football that effectively cuts him out of the game. Well, the Pogba one was weird. It was like he was playing his own little game. He was getting on the ball. Like he's, he's amazing at times, uh, his ability to dribble past players in crowded areas in the middle of the field and obviously hold them off as well. But it was like he was doing that, but it wasn't connected to anything else that was happening. Hmm. He would do that for a while and then there was nowhere else to go. Uh, because it wasn't part of a concerted game plan. It's just he's that good and that skillful that he was trying those things. But as as you said, he was pretty much taken out of having any real impact on the game by the fact that the ball was just bypassing him when it mattered. Yeah, I mean, you know that that old thing. I forget where which training session it was or which manager, but like the midfielders all having to wear yellow bibs and his instructions to the team, right, right, leave out the canaries. And I mean, that was Pogba was the canary. He's like a, a 92 million pound canary standing in the middle of the field. Now, he didn't play particularly well. It was just dis- disconnected. It was just a little bit here, a little bit there. He wasn't like a consistent influence in the game. None of the Manchester United players really were. Um, and, I, and I think they're going to have to sort that out. What exactly do they want to do with Pogba? Because what Mourinho decided to do on Saturday was to play... Two defensive midfielders, Fellaini and Pogba. Neither is a defensive midfielder. Well, you know, <laughs> Manchester, you're playing against Manchester City. You know, what are they going to try to do in the game? Man City. Yeah. What, 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 how many passes are they going to have in the game? A lot more than you. How many, roughly how many passes are they going to walk off the field? How many do they have to make before they feel as though they've, they've had a decent game? In and around... In and around that kind of... And yet you play Fellaini and Pogba as, as two kind of defensive midfielders with, with Rudy, who we know isn't really going to be much of a factor in, in, you know, in midfield as normally a third. I think that's just... I don't see how that's going to work out. Mm. Neither of them is a, is a defensive midfielder. With Pogba, what are they going to do? I mean, with Fellaini, uh, you know, Mourinho obviously likes him, has been on the record saying, you know, I think he's, he's going he's, he's gonna to be a big player for me. Whatever about that. I mean, Pogba, we know, is going to be a big player. He has to be, at least for the next couple of seasons. You know, I mean, he has to be. But, but I don't think he, he's going to play that well in that type of position. I think he needs to be uh, the, the obvious template, you know, for, for the player that he could be like, I think, is Lampard when, you know, Lampard was in the, in the Chelsea team. Uh, Lampard was not playing with defensive responsibility. He was, there was, uh, basically their system was four, one, two, three. And Lampard is one of the two. Uh, and he's got a player behind him who's doing the defensive work. And he's got wingers who are trying to team up with chances. And a centre forward who's good with his back to goal. And he scored so many goals. I think Pogba could be brilliant at that. That's what it seems to me he is. That's, that would be the best use of his talents. In which case, you've got nine players for the remaining four attacking positions at Manchester United. Uh, which is... Uh, you know, which is quite a few, how they're going to fit them all in. Um, well, I yeah, I mean, if Mourinho fancied Schneiderlin, you would say that that's, that you you would play Schneiderlin as the one in that four one two three, and then you play Pogba further forward with Herrera. Yeah. You know, like, that, like it, this, the strange thing about this is is actually that Manchester United have plenty of players. Yeah. I mean, there are loads of players. I mean, it's actually just a way of trying to, trying to squeeze them all and you know there is obviously you know Rooney who like okay so he has to play I suppose we got to try and find a spot for him but um, yeah I mean like if, if Schneiderlin is the player that they bought then you would think that he's ideal for that role the McAuley role if you want to put it like that he, he's I would say he's the player in the squad who looks most like that type of player. I mean, is, you know, he doesn't physically resemble Claude McAuley but in terms of what he can do yeah. you think that would be his that's probably the position he's got the best chance of getting in the team in. I mean, the, the players, there's Latan, who I guess is going to play. He's like the, the true centre-forward, the only real true centre-forward they have, and he's obviously Mourinho's man. Uh, Rooney, captain, politically important. Uh, Rashford, favourite of 
everybody in the stadium who isn't employed by the club. Uh, Martial, probably their best player last season. Other than De Gea, yeah. Mkhitaryan, one of their main signings, although it seems to have slithered down one of the snakes on the snakes and ladders board as of, as of the other day. Mm-hmm. Lingard, maybe the same situation as Mkhitaryan. Thank you for your service, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the FA Cup. Yep. Herrera, who you suggested would be the, the ideal other you know, attacking midfielder with Pogba. Uh, Juan Mata, maybe not too much longer for the club, although a big favourite. And Memphis Depay, he, he's still there. So, that, so I mean, how are they going to fit them all in? I mean, or, you know, if there's, if there's, there's not too many positions for those players, attacking positions. So it's going to be interesting to see how Jose handles it. We're going to get back to the Manchester Derby with Jonathan Wilson in a few minutes, but let's go further north again. There was another Derby on. There was, and it was the return of Celtic versus Rangers. Or was it? No, it was, yeah. Was it Celtic versus... Brand new a club? new entity. Oh, of course. Yeah. Certainly, judging by um, the reception uh, the Celtic fans had for the yeah. fans of this blue uh, Glasgow team, uh, they feel as though does <laughs> they feel as though yes, it was <laughs> it was Celtic against Rangers. It's it's kind of a there seems to me to be a slight disconnect between a lot of Celtic fans. You can see it's this thing. This, the rest of the world has obviously lost interest in it at this stage. But a lot of Celtic fans are like, oh, you know, the myth of Rangers still being alive. What a joke. This isn't Rangers. They died. Rangers died. Or, or IP, et cetera, et cetera. You know, titles should all be scrubbed off, blah, blah, blah. And yet when this club bearing the name Rangers turns up, it's as though, you know, <laughs> they never went away. It's a glory days. Yeah. Rangers fans rampage in Celtic Park, smashing up the toilets in uh, images that I'm sure a lot of us will have seen, I'm sure, like just, just images of destruction at Celtic Park. Um, Celtic retaliate by smashing up their team. Uh, St. Brendan Rogers. Uh, I don't know if he was blessing himself at any stage, uh, but I'm sure a lot of the Celtic uh, supporters are ready to, to elevate him to the level of the, the ancient Irish monk who discovered America. Mm. Uh, such was his achievement in leading Celtic to a 5-1 uh, victory and you know various things in the you know Huns know your place uh, uh, dolls inflatable dolls strung up by the neck uh, from the stand all this kind of stuff so good old fashioned uh, Celtic Rangers action um, just as though Rangers had never died I mean died to to be honest uh, that what I actually really think about that is is the whole notion of the of the club Rangers being bound up with this particular financial entity is nonsensical. Rangers is clearly a cultural and spiritual entity more so than it was a, a financial or business administrative entity. Mm. Uh, and it's clear that Celtic fans feel in their gut the same thing. Otherwise, why not welcome welcome, to, to welcome new, uh, yeah. newbies. <laughs> <laughs> welcome Glasgow newbies to, to your first game at Celtic Park. First league match, I, I guess. I think they've played before in the cup. I can't remember for Celtic Park or Ibrox, but you know. Hopefully, um, over time, a healthy rivalry will, de- <laughs> will develop between these two neighbours. Scott Brown was asked afterwards about his battle with Joey Barton in midfield. Yeah. And he said, easy, it was fine, it wasn't a problem. There was no battling whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He then went on to say, the scoreline talks for itself at the end of the day. It was pretty much men against boys at the end of the day. We're a great team, very close together, and I think it showed out on the park. Well, it was men against much older men, actually, to be fair, uh, Scott Brown, because it was Kenny Miller, Joey Barton, Nico Cranshaw, Nico (laughs) Cranshaw, and Philippe Senderos uh, in the Rangers. Senderos was sent off. So, plenty of experience. Sometimes you can have too much experience. 5-1 was the score. Brendan Rodgers, uh, triumphant. Moussa Dembele, his signing, uh, gets the first hat-trick in an all-frame game since, uh, for 50 years, um, which is impressive. Um, I was amazed by that, actually, when mm. I saw that statistic. I thought, it can't possibly be true. And now that I've said it, I'm actually doubting it. Can that possibly? Can nobody have scored a hat-trick? Anyway, I'm sure people will let me know. You want to talk about a former... Uh, Brendan Rodgers' protege. Well, just the last Mario thing, because Brendan Rodgers is, is, is one of the more popular men in Glasgow right now, and a lot of his players, I'm sure, are happy to have him as the manager, and he's brought a, a great elan to the way Celtic are doing things. And it, it seems to be a, uh, a real green machine, a lean, mean green machine right now. But, of course, 
even the most popular men have their critics. And in the case of Brendan Rogers, uh, one critical voice was heard uh, over the weekend emanating from the south of France, Mario Balotelli. Mario Balotelli, uh, who has joined Nice now, and who scored two goals for Nice in his first uh, game for them. Two goals against Marseille, which is as many goals as he has scored in the previous two years in the league. And... Uh, <laughs> He said something amazing afterwards. The amazing bit is not what he said about Brendan Rodgers. He said, joining Liverpool was the worst decision of my life. Apart from the fantastic fans and some players with whom I have an excellent relationship, I didn't like the club. I had two coaches at Liverpool, Rodgers and Klopp. I did not like their methods and their personality. I never really felt well, uh, felt well there. I'm nothing like Zlatan, for example. You could confront Zlatan with lions and he would still be calm. If you, if you surround him with good people, he will still be calm. That's the way he is. But I need to be more relaxed and have trainings that work for me. But he then said, he, he was like, Ugh. obviously I'm, in, I'm back to form. I'm back with two goals. He said, it's not too late for me to win the Ballon d'Or. I think I could have already won it by now. But I might be able to win it within two or three years by working hard and staying serious. Over the past two years, my work ethic has increased from 10% to 80%. <laughs> He's not kidding anyone in fairness, 80%. He I have, I have really started working hard over the past two years, up to 80 <laughs> and in the red. I love that quote. That's yeah. like one of the most honest things I've ever heard a footballer say. What about 110%? But you know, 80% is a lot. It is. If he was working at 80%, he, he'd probably be pretty good. <laughs> you know, it's like this, I, I just love, love that somebody... Someone in a high-profile position, anyways, in a just position. calling bullshit on the yeah. whole. There's no, there's <laughs> whole no, there's, there's bullshit work ethic. This work ethic that we're all supposed to have—that Alex, the the scowling face of Alex Ferguson floating over all of us whenever we feel like slacking off—you suddenly have this vision of Ferguson in his black Puritan outfit, uh, <laughs> scow- scowling down disapprovingly. And why? It's so irrational to live that way. It's irrational. It's not, it doesn't make any sense. It's like Ferguson. Every time you won a game, it's like, well, forget that. <laughs> why? This is a, what are we all doing this for? Then? Why are we all on this treadmill? This is miserable. 10% is not great, though. 10% is 10% is bad. <laughs> Imagine. Uh, 10% is poor, now, Ken. I'm with, you, I'm with you on the whole. I but think you want to be working 50% work rate. Out of, yeah, if you can get it from order. 50 to 80, then I think your work-life work, balance is What is it all then. for? I mean, I, Balotelli is the only player who has even considered this. Stepping back and going, hang on a second, why would I even want to work that hard? Why am I punishing myself? What's it actually for? Some of these players who win all the time are among the most miserable people I've ever seen. They say that, they say that winning is a drug, but it's, it's not one that they can enjoy. It's like they just take it to, to kind of calm the withdrawal symptoms and then they have to get it again immediately, like another hit. It's, it's like a miserable addiction. Why would I even want to go that way? Why not just enjoy my life, what I'm doing? Uh, sure, you've got people like Brendan Rodgers and Jurgen Klopp who disagree, but they're sort of they're on the treadmill too. They're trapped by the same system. Everybody, you know, saying we've got to work out. And what's it, what's it all for? No one in football. Everyone in football has to eat broccoli now. Nobody can really drink. People can't. People, you know, think I'm unprofessional because I smoke. What's it all for? If we're all trapped in the same system, nobody has an advantage. Thank you, Mario, for your insight. That's the end of Kennedy's Report on Sport. Timbuktu. Yo, listen up, here's the story. They're all pumped. We haven't got leaders. They're all just headphones. Inside and outside, blue They don't communicate. You can't get anything out of them. That's why we're no good. They're all just headphones. They don't communicate on the pitch. They don't communicate off the pitch. They're all pampered. Oh, we're getting ready for Russia. Good luck. And then after that, we'll be building a team for Timbuktu. Timbuktu. Of England reacted to that equaliser perfectly. Um, no panic, calm straight down, continue dominating the game, playing and staying in Iceland's halves. It's been the perfect response. You'd think that no problem. Maggie Thatcher, your guys took a hell 
ever beating. Ladies and gentlemen, you boys took the hell of a beating. The only thing that they have got is the big boy up front, Sigurdsson, who really, Sigthorsson. Oh, my oh, word. Oh. Tell us, talk us through that, Steve. I think we know what's happened. Oh, just saying. Sigthorsson. <laughs> just cannot. <laughs> Okay, let's get stuck in a little bit further into the Manchester Derby at the weekend. Jonathan Wilson is ready to go, Jonathan. Um, well, we've kind of been talking about this already, but we were somewhat surprised about how fluid and how fluent Manchester City were, particularly in those early stages after not, not many weeks of pep. Yeah, extraordinary. I mean, that first sort of 40 minutes or so till they conceded the goal, it was reminiscent of what Bayern did to them um, in the Champions League. What was that, 2013? Um, and I, I guess the game was was quite similar in that uh, they yeah, totally dominated in that early period. They conceded and looked a little bit vulnerable, at, and I guess that's the one thing that gives the rest of the league some hope that um, City still haven't kept a clean sheet, and that there still do seem to be issues at the back if you put pressure on them. But that 30, the first forty minutes was was extraordinary, and, and as you say, I think the, the speed at which they got to that level um, is remarkable. You know, you think of Everything Van Hal said last season about you know, needing, or you know, two seasons ago, about needing th- three months and three years to see his team. Well, Guardiola's done that in you know, six weeks. Yeah, and so much of it went through Kevin De Bruyne. He was picking up these positions. It just seemed as though the United players didn't know where he was, really. Uh, and even later in the game, after City had had some rocky patches, I thought he was great again. This is a player who Jose Mourinho decided in his wisdom wasn't for him a few years ago. Yeah, which, I mean... Mourinho's transfer dealings increasingly look. Uh, I mean, I know Chelsea have had, had problems generally, but um, yeah, his decision on Lukaku, his decision on De Bruyne look look increasingly odd. Um, but I, I, I mean, I, I suspect Mourinho was a bit surprised by how good City were. Um, that if you look back at when they met in Spain, there were four occasions when he played the four three three with the three holding midfielders. One of whom was Pepe. Um, and you wondered if he'd, if he'd do that yesterday uh, on, on Saturday. Um, and you sort of thought, well, it's, it's a big statement to do that in your fourth game. Uh, you know, it does look negative. Not that Mourinho previously has, has seemed that bothered by, by image. But you know, then you think, well, maybe he thought, well, you know, City just won't be up to that level yet. We don't need to, to just kill the game. But you know, by half time, it was, it was very evident that they did need to kill the game. And I think it's actually a little bit worrying for United that he didn't do that earlier. And that was a very odd thing. I thought he said afterwards that he, you know, he didn't want to humiliate the players by taking them off in the first half. Well, when was that ever a problem for him before? You know, he, he's he did it with Matic last season of, of, of you know, bringing him on and taking him off very quickly. Uh, you know, he, he did it a couple of times at Chelsea of, of taking off two players. I, mean, I remember the game at Fulham uh, when he took off Joe Cole and, and somebody else. Sure, and Wright Phillips. I think. Yeah, Wright Phillips after twenty six minutes. Um, so why, why is he suddenly concerned by that? And you, you do start to think, well, yeah, has he been damaged by what happened at Chelsea? Is he starting to think, you know, I, I can't offend the players. Maybe the, you know, the, the charisma, the magic is starting to fade. And he's now second-guessing himself. Well, he did. I mean, there, there was a flash of the old Jose Mourinho when he, um, he talked about certain players not really being up to it for a game of this stature. And he said... You know, is it their fault for, you know, not producing? Is it my fault for picking them? Of course, I'm, I'm the manager. Of course, of course, it's my fault. But it was, it was quite clear whose fault he thought it was. That was a bit more like uh, like the Jose Mourinho that we know. But that was after the game. And, and mm. that also, I think, is worrying that, um, you know, look, it's easy to say after he's lost. And, I, and I'm aware that, you know, we can, um, we see these things through the prism of results. And I mean, you know, I'm, I'm aware I'm slightly being sidetracked here. But to give you an example of that, the whole thing Brendan Rodgers was mocked for, for putting the three names in an envelope. Alex Ferguson did exactly the same thing in 1994 and proudly talks about it in his autobiography. Everybody says that was a stroke of genius and got United to win, win the league that season. Um, sorry, it was 93, so before the 93-4 season. Um, so, you know, we, we do tend to view these things with prism of results. But at the same time, you wonder whether a, a, a genuinely ruthless manager at the top of his game, he makes the changes during the game, gets the result he needs in the game, and then after the match... He defends his players, uh, and you know, he deals with it all internally and, and presents an image of it, of it all being fine. Whereas he did the opposite; he he, he seemed slow to react during the game, uh, offers an excuse for that, and then calls out the players anyway. And you know, that's if you think back to the the game against Leicester last season, 
that's twice in four matches now that Mourinho's had a real go at his players, different clubs. But you start to think, well, if he's blaming his players this early, is, is that and you're justifying himself this early? Is is that a good sign? Mm. I mean, maybe you know, maybe he knows Mkhitaryan and, and Bailly and, and knows that they will respond well to that. But I think I think it's a huge risk, and it, it, it's the contrast to Alex Ferguson is I think huge. Ferguson would very very rarely attack his players in public. Yeah, I mean, what in terms of the actual game plan? I mean, Mourinho gave a bit of detail on that afterwards. In terms of he said, "I told him, I told him, I told him not to make first station passes." And I, which I hope is a concept he's explained in training because apparently they just they just kept <laughs> doing it, <laughs> passing the ball, central defenders passing the ball to nearby central midfielders. Mourinho said, "No, no, we don't want that. That's where they want to press." We, I told them not to do that. And eventually, they they cut it out. But there was an interesting moment in the game just before City's first goal, um, which involved Henrik Mkhitaryan. And I wonder what you thought of what was going on here because basically what happened was the ball was with Kolarov. Back uh, and he was way back. I mean, back near the corner flag, City's corner flag, and Mkhitaryan was sort of the United player closest to him, and he just kind of stood there and watched them. And then the whole stadium went, "Whoa, you know, what are you doing?" And Rooney, you could see Rooney shouting at him to get up, to move up uh, uh, onto Kolarov, uh, and Kolarov, I think, kind of exchanged the passes with uh, Bravo. And at this stage, then Mkhitaryan thought, "Okay, I, I'd better." you know, move forward here. And so he did, but not in, you know, not in such a way as to stop Kolarov actually playing the ball, which led to immediately to Manchester City's goal. But I wonder what you thought had actually happened there because, uh, I mean, it was obviously the crowd and, and Rooney felt that Mkhitaryan needed to get in there. But that's not something I've ever seen from a Jose Mourinho team, you know, forwards chasing opponents to the corner, you know, expending energy to that level in, in you know, to chase a ball that's, Sort of that far up the field. You know, it, I thought that Mkhitaryan was probably doing what he thought he should be doing there in, in terms of, okay, let's wait for them to play this out. There's no point in me running like an idiot to the corner flag now because this ball is just going to get played around me if I do. So I'll, I'll stay compact. What do you think was happening there? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I found that whole incident baffling uh, for exactly the reasons you outlined. That If you press, you press as a team. And what was strange was that when Kolov played the ball inside to Bravo, um, Ibrahimovic, Made a you know made a real sprint to close, close Bravo down, then he goes back to Kolarov, and Mkhitaryan sort of slowly jogs towards him in a way that is totally pointless. You know, you either charge at him and try and put pressure on him, or you hold your position and, and keep your shape. And he seemed sort of caught between the two. And whether he was surprised by Ibrahimovic going you know going to close Bravo down, but well, that the, just, the whole crowd as well. I mean, the, it was like the stadium was like, what are you doing? You know, there was obviously pressure being put on him, and Rooney was kind of gesticulating at him as well. Everyone was saying, "Get up there!" But I just wondered if that was if that was really part of their game plan. Yeah, I mean, and my suspicion would be that it wasn't that they would want to sit back and, and hold their shape, which makes Rooney's involvement. I mean, maybe now that that Sam Allardyce has made him manager of England, he thinks he can manage Manchester United as well. But it was. Yeah, it was. It was just the um, everything was wrong about it. That probably he didn't need to close him down. Probably he shouldn't have closed him down. And then when he did go to close him down, he had to do it faster. The only really saving grace from United and what made this an unbelievably exciting game, as opposed to just a, a dominant performance by Man City, was the performance of their goalkeeper, Jonathan. Or at least that's what everybody in the world watching this thought, uh, that this was quite a quite an embarrassing start for Claudio Bravo, or quite an embarrassing first Manchester derby. Not so his manager, who reckons it was like essentially the greatest goalkeeper performance he's ever seen, a, a work of art practically. Where do you fall on that? Um, I mean, broadly towards the former view, but I, I can kind of see what Guardiola is talking about. And there were some really nice passes, some some passes under pressure, um, where he found players in in space he wouldn't necessarily expect. So I, I think it's, it's one of those things where where Guardiola is clearly trying to bolster his confidence, trying to say, yeah, don't worry about all those times you messed up, and there were yeah three or four pretty bad errors, and I, 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 I you know that can look ridiculous, but I do think there was enough in the game that Bravo can can. Sort of, he, he will have certain good memories in that game. Um, I mean, again, the worrying thing about the goal is that he really wasn't under pressure. Um, and you do see him, if you look at the replay, you do see him shout. So you could, I, I mean, I don't know, but you can make a case that was John Stones' fault. But the communication there clearly wasn't right, whoever's fault that is. Uh, but given Bravo is shouting, I wonder what Stones thought he was shouting if he wasn't shouting that he was going to claim it. Um, so, I mean, and, and we, yeah. 
clearly what's going to happen from now is he's going to get a whole load of high balls pumped at him. And he is, uh, well, he's just under six foot, isn't he? So he is short for, for a Premier League goalkeeper. And that, that may, yeah, whatever his technical abilities, if you're four inches shorter than the, the, the guy you're challenging, that, that can be a problem. But it wasn't just, you know, as well as the, that mistake, there were a couple of loose touches as well, particularly when he uh, had to go out and challenge Rooney for a 50-50 ball. So I, just, I, I, I would fear for Bravo that the underlying blows to his confidence that he will take if he, if he makes more of these mistakes under the high ball surely are going to affect this whole game it's like a striker who might be trying to pass the ball around reasonably well and you know have a few assists but if they're fluffing chances in front of goal that's, going to, that's got to get at them unless they're bulletproof uh, confidence wise yeah that's true and I guess it is a risk of playing with a goalkeeper of that nature but I mean that, that is you know that risk is inherent in, in that style of play that um, yeah, they will make mistakes every now and again, and when they make mistakes, they they will look terrible. Um, but you know, if Guardiola can persuade him that, that the the overall benefit, you know, he's played like that from from being a kid. You know, if you look at the the influences on him, he, he's never had a coach who who didn't believe in that type of football. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess he must have made mis- mistakes before. There is obviously a difference if you make it in your first game and then you make a couple more pretty quickly. Um, and I, yeah, I, I, I suppose you're right that the the, the the worrying thing from a City point of view is that heavy touch that led to what I think should have been a penalty and, you know, goalkeepers seem to get away with challenges that, yeah. that other players wouldn't. Uh, that That's not to do with being short. It's not to do with, you know, the sort of high ball he's maybe not that used to. That was just a heavy touch. But that, I guess, brings us back to, to the point that, um, you know, a few people made, and I think Ken made it about, about heart stats, that if, if you look just generally across the Premier League and compare it to La Liga or, or the Bundesliga, uh, goalkeeping pass completion rates are much, much lower. Now, that can't be that all goalkeepers arrive in England and suddenly lose the ability to kick. It must be something to do with the pace of the game and the willingness of forwards to put pressure on, on opponents. And maybe, rather playing for Barcelona, most teams sit off against them. He, he, he has a bit more time in the ball and he doesn't find himself under that kind of pressure. So, yeah, that, that's something he's got to get used to. Um, but I, I, and that, I guess, is why Guardiola was emphasising the you know, the good passes he did make and the times when he was under pressure and did did choose the right option. When we look now at the odds for who's going to win the league, Man City are red hot favourites now. Uh, they're actually slightly odds on, um, and the next the teams that are chasing are Chelsea and Manchester United at six to one. And I got to say, I'm a bit surprised by that. I didn't realise that. That's not a bit of a panic. I think panic reaction. I, it's I, one game. Yeah, I, 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 I think so as well. And the thing that I can't help noticing about the, the difference between Manchester City and the two teams behind them is that this week Manchester City play Borussia Mönchengladbach in the Champions League, and they've got a game every three or four days, kind of for the foreseeable future. Whereas Manchester United are playing a game in the Europa League on Thursday that Jose Mourinho has made it quite clear is for is a game for Phil Jones. Uh, you know, that type of a game. Um, Chelsea, uh, well, it remains to... I mean, they're, they're not in Europe at all. Um, and that's going to make a big difference over the course of the season. Manchester United might not be able to beat Manchester City, but they don't actually have to beat them in order to win the league. I could, <laughs> I think that uh, City are going to struggle to sustain that sort of level when you consider that their schedule is so much more difficult. Yeah, I mean, th- th- those are all fair points. I still think City are pretty firm favourites in my mind. Um, whether they deserve to be odds on, yeah, you can, you can query that. But uh, yeah, I, I thought City would win the league before the season began. I'm more convinced of that after Saturday. Uh, and that's not just because... I, I, I mean, I, I think there's improvement to come in City as well. I think when uh, when Sane is fully fit, when Gundian comes in, um, yeah, they do have a good squad. They do have a deep squad. Obviously playing, you know, Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, Wednesday through the season uh, decreases the amount of time you can you can spend on tactical preparation, which is one of Guardiola's strengths. So we'll we'll have to see how he deals with that. But I, you know, I thought that was a hugely impressive performance on Saturday, and I, I can I can understand why why their odds have shortened significantly. All right, Jonathan, brilliant stuff. Thank you. Cheers, thank you. Yeah, it's interesting this dynamic of how Mourinho dealt with his underperforming players because when he sent Rashford and others to warm up. After about twenty minutes, whatever it was, I thought, another juicy little, as as if I wasn't hyped up enough, Ken. My my own head. I thought this is going to be good. This is. I mean, nobody wants to see poor Jesse Lingard or Mkhitaryan hauled off before half time, except we all do. 
Yeah, it's just, it's just would just be exciting. I, I was watching and thinking, if this is a GA game, Jesse Lingard's off. He's completely one hundred percent taken off after eighteen minutes but when the ball just it. rolls under his foot. And I, I started to think, you know, I was thinking like, why not take him off right now? I mean, the guy's played. It's not like oh, it's a tactical switch. He wasn't really like the guy was embarrassingly bad. Like he was embarrassing himself out there. Mm. Like take him off after twenty minutes. He's a professional. He be a man about it. You played terribly. So you're, there are consequences. Take them uh, off. It would be it would be awful. I can see. Well, well, oh Eva yeah, Marino. but I mean, it, well, you're saying it'll be awful because it's just not done. And what I'm saying is the cu- this culture that you've got to wait till half time to take someone off. I think it's because there's only three subs as well, though. Yeah. I mean, when you take two players That's off after much. 20 minutes, uh, you're you're giving yourself a bit of a mountain to climb. Well, if there's I, any issues yeah. later on? Yeah. Well, I would say take Jesse GA. Lingard off if you're Mkhitaryan. You're looking across the way, thinking, right? Okay. Well, probably time for me to up my game here a little. You yeah. know. I think, I mean, Mourinho did say if I had had unlimited substitutions, I would have made all these changes. So I'm sure the fact that he could only make three was one of the reasons why he didn't make one earlier than he did. Yeah. Um, you know, it it would have been really, really hard to take it for Lingard. It's such a disgrace. In a game like that, oh. Manchester, boy, well, he's from Warrington, I believe. I have to walk off the, off the field. Yeah, and going, oh, dear, oh. Lingard just can't cut it. But I, I'm kind of interested as to why Lingard played that badly. I've never seen him play that badly. No. You know, and he's he's performed in big games. I mean, he's, he scored the winner in the cup final, didn't he? Yep. Yeah. Um, I mean, he he has played well uh, in a lot of big games before. He's never been a, you know, he's one of those Jesse won't let you down type yeah. guys. So why was he so bad? Why was why why was Anthony Marshall not playing? Uh, this is something I don't understand. I mean, whatever about leaving Rashford out, you can say Rashford is only eighteen. You know, and has a record of being really good off the match. Scored the winner against Man City last season. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe maybe Rashford should be in the team, but Martial was so good last season. In my, well, in my opinion, Jose Mourinho, there's something about Anthony Martial that maybe he's not... He's still waiting to be convinced by. Yeah. So it's a very interesting situation. And the fact that he's already kind of, you know, p- you know put some blame on some of the players, I, th- I thought was an interesting move this early in his career. But, you know... We'll see how it turns out. Tony Barrett was at Anfield for Jodakota UK to see Liverpool crush defending champions Leicester. Uh, the new look Anfield, I should probably start with. Tony, did it feel like a transformed stadium with the new stand? It did, to be fair. I've got to be honest, that, that how much it felt transformed surprised me. The, it did look, the stadium looked better. Obviously, the facilities are better. Obviously, it's only one stand that's being done. But straight away, there was there's eight and a half thousand more people in there. There's a better atmosphere. And it was, it did feel like a new beginning, and that was that was something that Klopp was was keen to emphasise in the build up. That was what he wanted. He wanted a sense that this is a, a fresh start for players, club, manager, supporters, everyone, and uh, and, and that was also reflected in the mood of the day, and, and obviously the result also reflects that. Yeah, maybe the maybe what was happening on the field had something to do with the atmosphere because a lot of the times yeah. when clubs move to a new set or. It, this obviously isn't moving to a new stadium, but it is a redesigned stadium. You could see, for instance, at halftime, that whole middle section uh, was totally empty, the way that it always is at the Emirates or, or Wembley. Uh, and you can see at West Ham at the moment, for instance, that is a new stadium, but it's like the old fans hate the new fans. Uh, there's, all, there's all kinds of problems going on. Uh, it seems as though this has been fairly seamless, though. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's not... It's not perfect. There are plenty of Liverpool fans who would prefer a new ground just because they think it, it, they, they need a much bigger capacity. If you think of the fact that Liverpool played in front of 90,000 supporters at Wembley a few weeks earlier, and, and that was obviously against Barcelona, and, but the overwhelming majority of people there were, were Liverpool fans. And if you look at the number of people who come to Anfield and who try to get tickets, the stadium probably still isn't big enough, and it's a further expansion, but there is that. It's it's kept the sense of, of what Anfield is not not completely because that's been diluted over the, over recent years as as at every big ground of every big club. Uh, it's not it's certainly not the Anfield of the seventies and eighties and and, and th- those days are probably gone for good. But what 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 it has done it has allowed more people to go to the game and, and Liverpool and 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 but, but what you rightly say is that it is all about what happens on the pitch. If Liverpool get off to a fine start, if they the fans react. If it's a struggle, if you get a, if you go with a sore or you lose, uh, with Liverpool being prone to, you think of the last game, the cop, you think of Steven Gerrard's last game. Uh, they, they, they've been prone to freeze on those type of occasions, but on this time they didn't, and, and that just lifted the whole place. Yeah, it was an unbelievable performance. Was it, was it their best home performance under Klopp, do you think, in the league? Uh, 
possibly there's some good contenders to be fair. But I thought in the Europa League against United, they were excellent. Uh, probably against Real, they were very good as well. The, in, in the league, it probably is just just in terms of the, the number of chances they created against a very good side. And now, and now, less than the less of last year, we can already say that, we can, that there's no need for anyone to worry about being proven wrong this year. They won't be challenging for the title. That, that's that's absolutely clear. Uh, the loss of Kante is. is we can now see the weaknesses that he was covering. Uh, but Leicester still had a good side. There aren't many good sides in the Premier League. I think we all have to accept that. Once you get past United, see Chelsea, Arsenal, to a lesser extent, Liverpool on, on last season's evidence, evidence, certainly there aren't that many good sides, but Leicester would be one of the ones you say are. Uh, so for Liverpool to create, I think it was seven, eight clear chances against them and to score four that shows you how well they played on the day Yeah, Tony, you in your first piece for uh, Joe, your new uh, employers, you did a big thing about Liverpool's transfer uh, business over the summer and the interesting thing about this was that in this record-breaking summer of spending they actually made money on transfers which is which is very unusual for Liverpool and very unusual certainly in the context of what, uh, what has been happening I mean, you kind of you went into detail on, on um, you know, why they'd done this. But one, one line I thought was interesting, um, you said valuations were crucial to everything Liverpool did over the course of summer. Those attached to players already at the club had to be met if they were to be allowed to leave, while those of the targets would not be stretched if deals were to be struck. What I wondered was how can they set valuations when the sort of income has increased so much? I mean, you know, if Squadron Mustafi is £35 million what tools do Liverpool use to establish, you know, how much a given player is worth? Yeah, and, and listen, that, that, that's one of the tensions in the entire strategy. The I think what they did this summer and, and this probably want to plan in the future is they got a lot of deals on early, and, and they, they look for value abroad as much as anything else. If you, if you look at the if you look at the two big signs, the two big Premier League signs, and they fit in with that uh, idea that we've seen at every club this summer, where players signed from English clubs cost a lot of money. So you got Mane at thirty million. When Alderman twenty five, so so they were the big hits, and they they don't that conform to, to everyone else's reality. But what Liverpool also did is that is they looked abroad for value, and they looked abroad for value early, and they, and they got deals done before the the Premier League money became uh, such an obvious opportunity for clubs to, to to extract huge transfer fees, and and they took advantage of some clubs. Clearly, if you look at uh, Ragnar Klavan. Four million pounds. Listen, he's not going to be a starter, but he's a thirty-year-old Estonian international with a hundred-plus caps who's coming in as a backup centre-back, and he's coming for the low fee. If you look at, for example, Ashley Williams, who's gone to Everton two two years older, it was t- it was ten million pounds. I think that's what they've done. I think that's where they found the value. Also, uh, using Klopp's knowledge of the Bundesliga, there, there weren't any other clubs in England who were looking at Joel Matip, who was available on a free. But because Klopp knows him, he knew from Schalke and, and from their game against Dortmund, he was able to see that this was a player with his height, his ability on the ball would be suited to the Premier League. So it was a, it was a question of circumstances. It, it, that was circumstances where the Liverpool's favour. And to be disappointed because Klopp is obviously a good appointment, who knows that Bundes the mark. And that, and that gave him the opportunity to bring in those type of players and, and keep the spending low at the same, the same time as he was selling high. You, you also said that Klopp's logic is the minute you start paying over the odds, you make yourself a hostage to fortune. That's something he means reluctant to do. Does that mean that he is reluctant to uh, go really balls out uh, by you know spending money on players? Because if he does, then people might expect him to win the league instead of just hoping that he does. I think that certainly goes with it. I, I think he's, he's, he's almost pure attack on this. And there's loads of hypocrisy in all of this. Klopp earns seven million pounds, obviously, and is, is very highly paid. And, and clubs make massive money and charge people lots of money to, to attend their football matches. But the way Klopp sees it, he doesn't want to pay high fees and higher wages than he has to, because so all that does is in the future every player you go for, you have to do the same. And that that is sort of, that has been the case at Liverpool for, for twenty five years. That the minute they started paying over the odds, it killed them. And they've never recovered from that because every summer they repeat the same mistakes. They, they end up paying more for every play. It was only last year they paid thirty million for Christian Benteke. That 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 fee just I know it's been almost met again this summer, which obviously after the T B deals caught there and facing title, but Liverpool repeated that mistake time in, time out. And Klopp's come in, look at the squad, seeing this players, the likes of Benteke, the likes of, of Balotelli, Liverpool have paid 
far too much for, and he wants to change that culture. And I, I've always thought that Liverpool would need a couple of summers of doing that, of, of resistance in the transfer market and, and not making the same errors that have, that have plagued him in the past. And it might be that, that you have a couple of fallow years or even more fallow years as a result, but that, that again could be a place where it's paying if people will, will, will then respect you in the market in the way that they haven't respected Liverpool for, for, for far too long. All right, brilliant stuff. Listen, we'll leave it there. Tony, great stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers, yeah, it's good to speak to you. How convinced are you by Klopp's logic here, Ken, with regards to the, this transfer money? Is it not necess- maybe the case that his club is clearly spending big money on their stadium, therefore there's probably less money to spend on transfers? The manager is told this, and as a good club man, he dresses it up. He, he then applies whatever logic he needs to apply to present to the media as to why they're not spending loads of money on players. I think there's a bit of that going on, mm-hmm. definitely. Uh, I mean, Stan has to be paid for um, over a period of five years, supposedly, um, which means that you know, it's, it's quite a quick repayment schedule. They are in a position where they, they do have spare money to do that. But, you know, Klopp, I, I think part of it also is, I mean, I remember after the, I was at the Europa League final and Ben Teke was speaking afterwards and he was saying, well, you know, uh, we've got a very big squad here and we're not in Europe next season, so... I guess there's going to have to be some you know, changes here. I and mean, obviously he was one of those changes. He's gone. I think one, one thing to keep in mind is that part of the reason that they have not spent money, I mean, in net terms, that doesn't mean they haven't spent money at all. They've spent, I think, over £70 million. The difference now is that other clubs can pay big money for their players, which wasn't the case before. So previously, when, say, they spent, you know, thirty-two million on Benteke. Obviously, he's got no future there. Doesn't want him. They, they don't want him anymore. They're going to have to get rid of him for you know, like Andy Carroll, thirty-five million. They paid for him. Had to sell him to, for fifteen million. I think it was to West Ham, mm. um, the only team that were kind of interested. Uh, and previously, uh, they would have just had to offload Benteke at a big loss, and then it would have looked like they'd spent more. You know what I mean? Their their net spent. They sold Jordan Ibe for fifteen million. You know, they sold Brad Smith for for nearly six million, I think. So they've got a lot of money for players they didn't want. And previously, they always just had to take massive losses on those players. So in an, if the situation was a bit different, like essentially what I'm saying is all that money coming in has enabled other clubs to make Liverpool's figures look better by, by buying their unwanted players, which previously was never the case. You mentioned West Ham fans there, not all necessarily getting on with each other. Oh, yeah. And the team... Didn't do much for them at the weekend. <laughs> I thought I was a bit surprised. Did you see what Troy Deeney said? Troy Deeney scored a, a pretty good goal. Uh, so they were hammered by Watford at home. Yeah, it was. They were two 0 up, and the second goal was brilliant. It was like uh, Payet out in the right side of the penalty area, kind of cuts slightly to his left, and then a beautiful Rabona cross uh, curling towards the far post, and Michael Antonio heads it in. Beautiful goal, two 0 West Ham. Olympic Stadium. Um, amazing. Uh, and then, unfortunately, they conceded four goals. And Troy Deeney actually said uh, <laughs> he thought that Pyatt was taking the piss out of them. He said, he said, uh, as a player, I thought they were trying to mug us off a little bit. You can appreciate good skill. It was great skill for the second goal. But as a professional, you cannot allow someone to do that to you. You see that in the playground with six and seven-year-olds. We are grown men. There were some harsh words said to each other. Everyone had that fire in their belly again. I thought that was incredible. You know, Pyatt, I didn't think it was... Disrespectful. Did you think? No, I mean... It, it was one of the rare instances I've seen where that was the right choice of how to deliver the ball. You know, usually when someone does that, they are just showing off. Well, I mean, he could have crossed it with his left foot, I suppose, but I mean... Well, maybe he just thinks he's better with his, with his right foot. I mean, he clips it beautifully to exactly where he wanted it to go. You know, it was a... It was good. Yeah, no, I, 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 I don't really... Like, I can see why Troy Deeney might think that, but I think he's wrong to think that because Pyatt's an unbelievably good, skillful player who can do that. Yeah. And he knows if he does that, there's a 95% chance it's going to go where it needs to go. Therefore, why not do it? If he's, if he's done the percentages on it and he thinks there's a 85% chance his left foot's going to, you know, blast it into the rules Z, yeah. then why not do it? I don't yeah. know. I don't think it's disrespectful. Dean didn't like it, but the West Ham fans obviously loved it, but then things went bad. And things went bad then in the stand um, because loads of the West Ham fans want to stand in the stand, mm-hmm. although they should be sitting because that's what you're supposed to do. 
and also when you stand, the people behind can't see. Mm. So then people are standing, and then the people behind are like, "Why well, you used to get down, you know, I'm trying to see the game. And you can imagine how this situation then develops, as the people in front are like, no, I'm going to stand, and the people behind are like, no, you should sit. And respectfully, they begin to disagree, and then disrespectfully, and then Sorry, there's fights. Mate. Sorry, mate. You're just you're standing up Sorry, there. Mate. Sorry, just mate. It's just that I, just, I, I have to sit down. So. It's just that I'm trying to. It's just I can't really. Um, I see it, Ken. And uh, so, so it's it's causing a bit of ructions. Uh, they've identified. We have identified a number of supporters uh, involved in incidents of disorder during Saturday's Premier League match. That's from the that's from the uh, stadium operator, which isn't actually West Ham. So, uh, new the like I was saying to to Tony, there's new fans or the. Uh, there's like old fans who are angry that they've been put in with new fans. It's like th- these idiots who don't know how to, you know, newbies who don't know how to support mm. West Ham, uh, who don't sing enough uh, kids with season tickets everywhere. Uh, you can't really get a good football atmosphere. It's a teething problem of a, of a beautiful new stadium. There were some ugly scenes also in the stands at the world title fight at the weekend, the O2 Arena in London. GGG. Really? No, no, not ugly in terms of violence. No, it's just ugly in terms of the fans baying for blood and not being satisfied when their fighter, Kel Brook, was taken out of it by his own corner. The Dominic uh, Ingle, the, 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 his, his trainer, threw in the towel. Um, given that, you know... Didn't his, he have a broken eye his socket? His fighter had a, a broken eye socket and was fighting a man two eights bigger than him who is an absolute monster and was beginning to really pummel him. But, you know, Ken, the... People sometimes, some of the people turn up to these people big fights. People sometimes want to see a boxer die. I don't know what they want to see a boxer do, but they uh, certainly didn't, seem, twerp. didn't seem too happy that he was taken out of there. So we're going to talk about all of that with Andy Lee, who has decided that he is continuing boxing. He hasn't fought since he lost his world title to Billy Joe Saunders last year. He wants to fight Golovkin. Uh, there's a couple of other fights that might have to happen first, but we get into all of that with Andy in the uh, in our second podcast out today. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening to this one. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Al. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Thank you, Thank you all. Take care. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.